This is episode 55 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Julie Firstman. Julie is a shareholder with the Michigan law firm of Foster, Swift, Collins, and Smith, PC. A lawyer for 34 years, her practice focuses primarily on business litigation, insurance litigation, and equine law. She is a past president of the 35,000 member State Bar of Michigan and has been listed for several years in the best lawyers in America. With the National Equine Law Practice, she has tried equine-related cases before juries in four states and has handled equine matters in 18 jurisdictions around the country. A frequent speaker on equine law, her speaking engagements span 29 states. In addition, she has written more than 400 published articles and four books. Equine Law and Horse Sense, her newest book, was published by the American Bar Association and has already won two national awards. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horsebook authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horsebook. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horsebooks, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Show. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to be speaking with Julie Fershman. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thanks for having me. Of course, thank you for being here. Uh, this is going to be a fascinating uh, conversation because Julie is in equine law. But before we dive into those details, I always like to kick off the interviews with my guests by asking, you know, how did your love affair with horses begin, Julie? I grew up in the city. I still live in the city, although a suburb with a two-stall horse barn. And as a young kid, uh, I would go on pony rides almost on a weekend basis. And my father discovered that I didn't want to leave and that maybe there was a connection at the age of four and five and six. At the age of eight was my very first time taking lessons. So my introduction was horses, or in this case, ponies in the city. So I'm a big believer of introducing people to horses who aren't in rural areas because, as we know, they can change our lives. They can enrich our lives. Oh, that's a beautiful story. And good on your father for noticing that there was a connection between you and these animals because they are. They certainly are life-changing. And his noticing led you to you know, be involved with horses in a much bigger way because you are widely recognized as one of the nation's leading counselors and litigators in equine law. Your law practice crosses all grades and disciplines and serves stables, insurers, industry professionals, associations, businesses, show management, trainers, equestrian athletes, I mean, and clinicians across the United States. It runs the gamut. So tell us about your work. I've been a lawyer for 34 years. I started at the age of two, you could tell. Just kidding. But <laughs> law schools, when I went uh, as a law student, did not teach equine law. Um, books didn't exist on equine law. There may have been a small paper back many years ago, back in the 70s, but very few publications. Certainly, we didn't have the internet that we could search to find information. But it was about seven years out of law school that I enjoyed what I did as a litigation attorney going to court on business matters. 
But I thought maybe there's more. Maybe there's a body of law involving horses. Without the internet, it became a passion of mine to go to the law library every single weekend. Easy to do with a supportive husband and no kid at the time. And discovered by reading publications in the law library that there was a body of law devoted to horses. Everything from contracts. And there were cases that nobody ever really put together and talked about. There was a body of law developing involving liability. And that was the emergence of the equine activity liability laws that started back in 1989 and now are in 48 states. But I began reading about it and recognizing trends. And from that point, I thought, if this was an interest I had, there are bound to be people who could benefit from it. And I began writing articles starting around 1992. For a while, it was an every month thing. And I was in publications all over the place. So equine law became a fascination. It became an interest, and it became something I did a lot of writing and speaking about, uh, and that's what led to uh, to this, my, my newest publication. Which is a perfect segue. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about next. You know, so let's talk about your book, uh, Equine Law and Horse Sense, which is a which I love this. When you reached out to me, this is how you described it. It's a comprehensive, user friendly, uh, and down to earth equine law book. So. Talk to us about what compelled you to write this book. Tell us a little bit about the book, uh, because I love the term user-friendly, because when we, when we speak about law and litigation and all these matters, it can be very confusing for a small business owner. So let's talk about your book. Well, the law can be overwhelming. Let's face it. There is so much to know about the law. When we think of lawyers that have general practices, let's face it, they will draw the line at certain things. The practice is simply too broad. Um, but with my understanding and the research and the work I've done in the, in the horse industry, um, the articles and the material that I've put together have been involving a certain segment, I suppose. I don't talk about tax law. That's out of my area. And, and I don't talk about regulatory law when people get uh, challenged or thrown out in some instances of associations and have a right of appeal and hearing rights. I don't talk about that. But areas of law that I think are so unique and so important to the horse industry. And my focus uh, has been contracts. Uh, and that to me is a huge thing that people need to learn about because of the calls I get from all over the country. People get into trouble by not documenting, not, not documenting thoroughly, trusting of total stranger. I also write a lot about liability because that's important to me. And that's a big part of my law practice. I do a lot of work representing generally people who have been sued, not the ones who bring the lawsuits. Mm. Um, and I am very concerned that people learn not only what liability is, but how to avoid it. Uh, as my husband told me back in the 90s when I began writing, he said, you know, you're going to write yourself out of business. And my response was, Yes. <laughs> the industry needs information. I also write about insurance. I, I do a lot of work with equine insurance and insurance covering businesses in the equine world and individual horse owners. Problems occur and people sometimes get into trouble with their insurance companies. Disputes happen. A lot of money is spent on legal fees, but it can be avoided. Mm. I write about the issues like that. And then another thing I'll add, uh, in the community, I think as I touched on where I live, it's a suburb of a very big city. I live in a suburb north of Detroit, Michigan. Totally unique to the area is the fact that in my community, you're allowed to stable horses. So all I need to do when I, put, when I used to put my horse in the barn, 
is get on the highway and go downtown to Detroit. And I would be downtown in about 20 minutes. I'm that close. And yet we have horses. So part of the writing that I have done is what people can do to avoid disputes with horses in their neighborhood. Mm. Urbanization, urban sprawl, if you will, has put more and more people in the path of where horses are. And sometimes horse people get on the muscle. We were here first. Well, that may be true. And the neighbors want to shut things down. Fights occur. A lot of money is spent on legal fees. The practical approach I take and that I write about is to learn about some of these zoning regulations, some of the basics, but what we can do to avoid trouble with the neighborhood and how we can generate some support. I did that back many years ago when my community wanted to get horses out. And I used a lot of the very same things that I write about. And now I have friends in the community who support horses. I got voted on to the planning commission. I've been invited many times to run for the village office where I live, to be on the city council, if you will, because not of uh, butting heads, but finding a way to accomplish useful purposes, achieving our goals, but not by beating people up over it. I write about that. Practical points are what I focus on. That makes a lot of sense. And in what you just shared with me completely speaks to me. One, I'm from Michigan, so we have that in common. I'm from Clarkston. uh, So I'm very familiar with where you are. But also, I live in uh, Arizona in an area that is zoned for horses. But what is happening around me is people are buying the properties because they're bigger, but they're not using the horse rights. So a lot of the the homes around me now don't have horses in the backyard. So that makes us a minority in our neighborhood and being Mm -hmm. horse owners. So your advice would obviously benefit me and I'm sure many other people that are experiencing this sort of situation. So thank you for talking about this. Now, so getting back to the book, uh, tell us what, what's in there. I know it's meaty, but you know, (laughs) talk to us a little bit about, you know, and I love that it's user-friendly. So this is, this could be like a beginner's book for someone who's interested in protecting their rights as a horse owner or as a small equine business, correct? True. Um, This is the book. It's called Equine Law and Horse Sense. And as we talked about before we uh, began taping this, the book just won an award. It became uh, the honoree, the, the winner, first place in the American Horse Publications 2019, apparently, Equine Media Awards. That's nice. And it tells me that the book apparently is resonating with people. It won another award even earlier. The Independent Book Publishers Association gave it a silver award, second place out of a very large number of entries. It's resonating with people. Let me explain why. Um, The book covers a whole variety of topics. It talks about veterinary malpractice, products liability. What do you do if you suspect either one? How do you preserve your, your evidence? What kind of things do you need to know about? As I mentioned, it talks about zoning disputes. It talks about contract disputes, how to avoid them. I even give examples of elements. I don't give forms. If anybody thinks that this book might include forms, that all they need to do is photocopy or download if they buy an ebook of this, you won't find them. There are too many variations around with the country, you're, the, the state, the area of the country you're from, your state, your personal interest. But I talk about elements, bullet point elements to consider in contracts, including porting, training, releases, sales, a whole variety of them. And then I hone in on a few things. I talk about the sale disclosure laws in three states right now, California, Florida, and Kentucky. 
and the unique elements that you would want to consider in those states. I talk about the 48 equine liability laws, and unlike any book I've written before, because this is my fourth equine-related book, this book at the end has a section, not giving you all 48 of the laws, but I go through all 48 of the states, and mm -hmm. I tell you, um, if you are living or doing business in those states, what do the laws require you to do in terms of signposting, in, and in terms of contracts, because as, as you may know, some of the state laws will impact what you put in your contracts. You're in Arizona. I don't believe Arizona has a signposting requirement, but Arizona does have a requirement for language to be included in contracts. This book would give you that language. And, and that to me is a pretty useful tool. Mm. On the downside, two, three years from now, some of the laws may have changed, uh, but it'll give you a good starting point. Um, and, and the point too is I write like I want to read. If I'm going to learn something new, I don't need a bunch of paragraphs of stories and things. I want maybe an introduction that lets me understand the issue and I want it to be very succinct. Mm. That's the type of book it is. And, and with that in mind, I, I'm glad to see, as I've mentioned, that it's resonating with people. People seem interested in it. Hopefully people are getting a lot out of it. I'm sure that they are, and congratulations on your awards. Uh, winning uh, AHP Award, American Horse Publications Award, which we're both members of, is is a very big deal. So congratulations on that success. And, Thank you. And, and, and the resource that you're providing to horse owners is, is very important. I love how you incorporated horse sense into the title <laughs> of the book. So what is horse sense to you, and, and how did you incorporate that throughout throughout the book? Well, I can't tell you that if you read a section of it, you'll see horse sense, but what you will see is practical ideas, practical suggestions, everything from the bullet point ideas for your contracts mm -hmm. to examples of things you can do to avoid liability. That to me is really important. And some of the areas of the book go straight into problems that people can get into. I talk about half-lease contracts. You're a horse person. You know what they are. Anybody watching or listening to this knows that you've heard the term half-lease used in the horse industry. But I can assure you, if you were to go into a lawyer's office or call a lawyer today who doesn't know anything about horses, they will have no idea what you're talking about. No law book talks about half-leases, but horse people engage in them. Mm -hmm. Some call them shareboard uh, contracts. But I go straight into the problems that people can get into and how you can avoid these problems. So I think that knowing the law is helpful. Using that knowledge to avoid legal disputes is powerful. And um, I'm a big believer in that. Um, thank you for providing this resource for horse owners and making it user-friendly, which is so important when it comes to understanding this stuff. And the American Bar Association published this book. That's really cool. What was it like working with them? Did you approach them? Did they come to you? How did that process look? I have been heavily involved in bar association, which are to say lawyer association activities. We're not talking about going drinking at the bar, but bar is, as we know, the name for the organizations that lawyers and judges belong to. For example, in my own state from Michigan, uh, we have, as I sit here now, over 36,000 licensed attorneys. I was president of our bar in 2011 to 2012. It was my term. Uh, so bar association work has been very important and it's been a huge part of my career. But I began, I began to get involved in the American Bar Association many years ago, probably around 2005. They had an animal law committee. Mm 
mm. uh, of the tort trial and insurance practice section. And I was sought out to be one of the charter leaders of it. They had a group of about 20 or so of us. That got me started. And I began writing articles, not just as I had written for people in the industry, but now I was writing articles for lawyers. And they were publishing them in their newsletter and then in a law journal. And some of the material from that I actually ended up putting in this book. But it was through my involvement with the ABA that somebody approached me probably around 2015 and is a horse person had seen some of my writings, I'd spoken at a couple of ABA meetings, and asked, have you thought about writing a new book on equine law? Keep in mind, as I mentioned, this is my fourth book. I had written two earlier books that interestingly were equine law and horse sense books, but the first was written in 1996, the second was in 2000, they were old. So this person approached me at an ABA meeting and said, um, I think it's time to write a new book, and I think ABA will publish it. And that it began in about 2015. The problem is, I'm not an author by uh, my trade. I'm a lawyer, and I'm a very busy lawyer. So the hard part was getting this book done. But what I used in the years between the time I was supposed to get it out, which is 2015, to late last year, was I filled this book up with a lot of case material from cases that I had either worked on read about, spoken about. And so this book is full of summaries of actual cases. Mm. Quick example, the attractive nuisance. You live in an area, as you said, of Arizona, and you've got a lot of populated you know, communities around you. You've got probably a lot of homes, probably a lot of children. People have constantly asked over the years, are horses an attractive nuisance? And what is an attractive nuisance? We know that it is a condition of land usually an artificial one, that by its features tends to lure unsuspected children that may not understand or appreciate the danger and get hurt. That's an attractive nuisance. So the question is, does that include horses? Uh, so I took cases from around the country, and so people could not just hear me talk about it, but I gave very short descriptions. And interestingly, if you're wondering, okay, Julie, what's the answer to the question? you're going to find that some courts can't quite agree. Some say horses are, and some say that's not possible. The classic attractive nuisance when I was in law school was a thing like in uh, San Francisco where the cable cars were. There used to be a turntable years ago. I don't know what they use now to turn them around and get them going on the other side of the track, but the turntable was almost like a little merry-go-round for kids who would play on it. It was not meant for children to be playing with. It was meant to turn the cable cars around to get them going the other way. Well, kids started losing their limbs on this. That is an attractive nuisance. So some courts have said, that's an artificial thing. It's man-made. And sure, we can breed horses, but this thing is a living, breathing thing. So you, it illustrates the point that courts have different views of it, and the readers can now understand it by hearing me out, but then looking at how it's evaluated. Wow, that's an amazing example. I mean, and that's just probably one of many that you detail throughout this book, which is such a resource because I, I feel like with the law, like so it can be sliced and diced in so many ways that can impact horse people in particular, you know, because horses can hurt people if they don't know what they're doing, right? You know? True. And then the messy shared leases. Oh gosh, we could go down a rabbit hole with that one. True. I love this though. I mean, so you, your profession is being a lawyer, 
But, you know, you shared with me a very interesting story when I sent you over the interview questions that I'd love for you to, to touch on. You've written four books and more than 400 articles on equine law and published in all sorts of places. How did you decide that you wanted to get into freelance work with these publications? I mean, I'm sure the AHP was a big part of that. And obviously, writing about what you know gets the word out, protects people, but also drives clients to you, I'm sure. So talk to us about your freelance writing career. Well, it, it was, as mentioned, just a sideline. It was an adjunct to a busy practice. But when I began writing articles, I looked at various publications that I really enjoyed reading. And I saw that there were plenty of articles from veterinarians and from the clinicians and very well-known trainers that we know. And I handpicked a group at the beginning that I thought uh, would be a good fit. My earliest articles, for example, were from the regional publications, some from my own state of Michigan, some that covered Ohio, Michigan, and other areas, and also riding instructor publications, because a lot of these issues are just directly involving riding instructors. And so I began reaching out to them. It wasn't as easy back in the 90s, because I early 90s, I couldn't just send a quick email. I had to research these magazines, find them, and find out who edited them give them samples of my work. And it got to the point where publications started seeking me out. Because really, when you think about it, anybody who is a person of age like me, we know that back in the 90s, nobody was really writing about horse law. I believe there were maybe one, possibly two others, but it was very sporadic. I was writing them every, these articles every single month. It was out of interest in the subject matter. And then in 1996, when my first equine law book came out, it was a way of saying, why don't you consider getting this book? Mm -hmm. And the books would sell. But I found the interest, the use of the publications to get the message out was critical. And the type of publication was also important. Uh, Some just didn't seem to work. Publications, for example, designed for children and, and, and children's showing activities, the 4-H type things. That wouldn't be the perfect fit, although 4-H leaders and parents uh, sometimes gravitated to these. Showing industries were very interested, which would be horse trainers, people who would you know compete, people who bought and sold show horses. They've always been a large component of people interested in the book and a large component of my law practice. The racing industry, In the mid-90s, a lot of them had the same opportunities to publish my articles. Some did, and a lot of them didn't, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. So the use of the, and the benefit I I derived from the publications uh, was really a way to to get the message out about these uh, articles. And it also told me segments that really wanted to know equine law. Mm -hmm. And as a lawyer, who was hoping to encourage people to hire lawyers, it, it told me where the work might be. And that's brilliant. I mean, you, you really looked for a space that wasn't being taken care of and you served it, you know, and then it served you in return. Well, yes and no. I want everybody to know that the point I've made in my articles was know these legal issues and, and seek out help when you need it. Mm-hmm. But the point wasn't necessarily to say, come to me. Now, as a lawyer, I know I can help people all over the country. Back then, I knew that as well, too. But the typical reader of a publication may think, if a lawyer like me wrote it, well, then you know, Julie Fershman can handle my case in Nevada, in Kentucky, California. I can't. I, I can only work 
based on the regulatory constraints under certain limitations. And that's the point I'd like to share. Yes, it's true. Some lawyers write to generate business, but not everybody's willing to spend money on two lawyers. And if somebody is not from my state of licensure, and I'm licensed in Michigan, I have to work with another lawyer in that state to, in some capacity. If it's a lawsuit, I have to have a local lawyer have the judge approve me to handle that lawsuit. It's worked though. I've tried cases before juries in four states. So three states, I've had to have another lawyer come to the judge and say, here's Julie Fershman. Can she come and, and work in our case? The judge has to approve it. And in different jurisdictions, that lawyer, the one who brought me in, is either uh, able to sit back and let me run with it, or they need to be involved. The net point I wanted to make is it can be expensive when you find a specialist lawyer uh, in other states mm -hmm. because you can't necessarily have that as your only lawyer. So the downside is, as I began writing articles leading up to books like this, the phone would ring a lot. A lot of people needed help, but I was unable to do that on my own. So it's a bit of a disappointment for some. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. That makes a lot of sense. You know, that lawyers, a lot of us don't know that either, that lawyers practice where they are licensed to practice. So, you know, working across state lines is often difficult. So to look for a lawyer in their state would make a whole lot more sense. So basically, you're just educating people so they know what's up. You know, they, they can protect themselves and do the right thing. And, and what a service that is that you're providing. And I, ha I have a question too, and I'm not sure if this is applicable, but I wanted to ask it anyway. Uh, do you have, because this is the equestrian author spotlight, do you have any legal advice or, or ways uh, authors can pr protect themselves and manage their book businesses? Is there something that authors should really know? I mean, you mentioned contracts earlier. Contracts are a very important part of doing business in any realm. But would you have any advice, given that you're the author of books for other authors in the legal realm? Well, I would first recommend that if an author is not interested in or capable of hiring a lawyer, for example, to review a contract, if you get published by a publishing house, then at, a, at the very least, join an association that might allow you to access resources. An example, my first two books were self-published. I, I made the rules, and I derived all the financial gain, and it was a very good move. My last two books were both published by the American Bar Association. My last one, I was a, I was a co-author, but I had a contract to sign with the American Bar Association. The contract covered all kinds of details, and it also explained the basics, like their rights to draw a lot of, or make a lot of decisions, my rights in terms of the creative license I had, but there was a critical thing that freelancers would probably need to know if you're writing under a contract. What are my royalties going to be? What do I make if this book is uh, sold in print, in an ebook? What are my rights when they seek to sell it outside of the US, if they translate it? Do I uh, derive net benefits, net percentages, gross percentages? When will I get my royalties? How will I determine what the dollars are to see if I'm being paid proper royalties? These are details in a contract that not everybody knows. So being a lawyer, I, I was able to find somebody to review my contract within my community that I know. But for those who don't have that luxury, this is important and find a way to make sure that your rights are being protected. And uh, do I have any other suggestions? No, if you can't hire a lawyer, 
understand that there are groups out there that may help. We talked about American Horse Publications. There are people very integrally involved in that group. Milton Toby, mm-hmm. he is one of my uh, heroes. Mm-hmm. He's very involved in a national association that protects the rights of authors. Uh, that organization would be great to look up. And for those listening, it's Milton T-O-B-Y. He's a lawyer in Kentucky, and I can't say enough great things about him. And Milton is amazing, and he actually was a guest on the Equestrian Author Spotlight. So I'll make sure to link to his episode in your show notes so people can get over to him. So he was earlier in the season. But yeah, I mean, that is the thing. Find the people. We're, you know, this is all about authors uniting, about protecting each other, about learning. Reach out to other people and ask questions because there are cases where authors sign away their audiobook rights. They sign away international rights. They sign away, you know, potential movie deals. And it's in the contract and they, they just didn't know to review and see that because there are so many chunks of intellectual property that go into one book that you've written or one manuscript can become so many different things. So it's so important to educate yourself. Thank you for sharing that, Julie. What has been for you? I like to ask these questions because the answers are always uh, different across guests. So for you, what has been the hardest part about having a writing career alongside your equine law practice? And then on the flip side, what's the best part about that? Really, if you know what your focus is as a career, it's not a problem. In my case, first and foremost, I'm a lawyer, and that's my full-time job. So there's really no difficulty for me with regard to writing and practicing law, because I write and speak when I can do it and when I fit it in. Um, So I don't have the same pressures of the more full-time journalists, the freelance journalists. They are reliant on those articles and the payment that they get for them. So it's, there has not been a major downside, except for perhaps one. When this thing was supposed to be coming out, which was probably back in 2016, it would only have been able to get published then if I had given up my law practice and gone on sabbatical to write the book. I couldn't do that. So the difficulty was that the deadline kept getting pushed out, but it was, I suppose, worth it. But the positive side mm-hmm. of writing, I think if there's any major positive I have discovered in having written articles uh, as much as I have since 1992, you somehow develop opportunities and connections from just writing an article that you would never imagine you could. I have to share an example. I was so passionate about the articles that I read, and I was trying to hone my skills as a better writer to be a better writer. Uh, And it was probably two years into writing I think we're now at about 1994 or so. Out of the blue, I got a call from the executive director of the American Writing Instructors Association, Charlotte Braley Neeland. Maybe you know her. Her last name is K-N-E-E-L-A-N-D. She was the founder of the American Writing Instructor Association, which also puts out the American Writing Instructor Certification Program. I share this with you because the phone call came in probably around 1994. And she said, I really enjoy your articles. We have a convention and we do it every year at the time. They they haven't done it now in several, but at this stage in the organization, it was an annual event with icons in the horse industry who cared so much about this group 
that I, I don't know if the group paid them to come out, but they would come out to the convention and speak. And the roster of speakers was loaded with icons, Ann Krasinski, Robert Dover, all sorts of names that you would absolutely know. Uh, Sally Swift was around back then, mm-hmm. and she was one of the speakers. This was all a convention at a hotel in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and it went on for a few years. But here I was as the uh, lawyer who occasionally writes articles with a one-hour segment devoted to horse-related law, and they helped work with me on a good topic. And while I was at this convention, you don't generally come in and out quickly. You get to mingle. You get to Mm -hmm. meet people. And I began to learn more listening to them and learning and interacting with them. And when it came time then for me to write my first book, we're now at about 1995, leading up to 96, I approached them and I asked them, here's a manuscript of my first book. Would you be willing to give me an endorsement? And they did. A lot of very well-known people in the industry that I would never have known, but for doing these articles and having these meeting opportunities, they wrote some really nice testimonials. And it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, Opportunities like meeting you. It wouldn't have happened, I suppose, for the internet, but also for our connection to American Horse Publications. I wouldn't be involved in it unless I was an author. Opportunities then come to you when you seek them out. And sometimes they come to you when you don't. Mm -hmm. So writing made it all possible. Mm -hmm. And I think writing, aside from meeting some great people, become a better um, writer as a lawyer, a better speaker as a lawyer. It grew to 29 state speaking engagements over the years, all because of articles. So to anybody listening to this, you may very well be a freelance writer, but very seriously consider it because of all the great things it can do for your career and your life. That is amazing. What an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. And that is so true. You never know who you're reaching or who you're touching or what opportunities are going to come your way because of a good writing career and the writing that you're doing and on a topic that you're so authentic and passionate about as well. And I wanted to touch on one thing quickly. So I know in order to be a lawyer, you have to write a lot and be a good writer. But when you decided you were going to start working with print, magazines or in do freelance articles, what did you do to educate yourself? Because you just you shared what how much opportunity there can be in freelance writing. What did you do to educate yourself to understand how to write for a publication just for those listening in? Well, everybody has their own style. And some work well with just a series of flowing paragraphs, just as if we were reading a novel. And that style works very well for several people. I'm a big reader of magazines in the horse industry. I love it. The style that I adopted from the moment I began was a style that broke things down. Because when I write briefs as a litigator, um, I will create subsections. People in my firm have learned that I have a reputation of using bullet points. That's just me. And I wanted that style to help emphasize the point uh, that I was trying to make. So I guess what I'm trying to get here is, as a lawyer, you develop your style and it changes. But as a writer, I took that you know, small b- bits and pieces style, and I stayed with it from the moment I began writing to even now. And I've seen some, there are some aspiring writers out there who are writing about law. And whether it's in, uh, in response to the style I've adopted or not, I don't know. Imitation is a form of flattery. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a good way to convey 
but could be very complicated legal concepts when you can break it down and ask what is an attractive nuisance, for example, how states have looked at attractive nuisance, here are cases, point, 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 and then you get to the conclusion. Or as I've written in many of my articles and in my books, I will conclude and say, here are some suggestions to avoid liability, point, point, point. That's how I want to read, and that's how I want to convey information. And uh, I don't think I learned that in law school. I think it was just uh, something that I've developed as a way of educating. Yeah, and it makes it easier to understand and clear. So you developed your own, I mean, with any writing, with any writing, it's developing your own style and what works for you, but also making it easy to read and understand for those reading, reading your topics. That's, that's great advice. So you didn't go back to school or take any online courses or anything for writing. You just developed your style and you learned about the publications, like what their kind of style was. And then you pitched them your stories, right? It was true. Um, and then it got to the point where publications were just saying, send us your articles every month. If resources do exist to educate people who want to be freelancers from people, you know, ta- taught by people who have a lot of credibility, that would be a great opportunity. Unfortunately, back in the time I started writing, those didn't exist. And I certainly wasn't going to go back to school for a journalism degree. That was mm-hmm. definitely not in the cards. But thankfully, with groups like American Horse Publications, we can hone our skills, we can network and, and become better at what we do. Mm-hmm. That's right. And the, the organization American Horse Publications offers e-gatherings where you can learn to sharpen your, you know, edit- or your journalism skills. Also, the, they have an annual conference where they offer all sorts of panels and conversations and seminars on the art of pitching or writing a story or working with an editor, uh, social media, like the whole gamut. So there are opportunities to educate yourself if this is what you're interested in. And I do know that there are online courses that you can take if you're interested in journalism. And there's books, books like crazy. So educate yourself, right? Go do it. Educate yourself. Find your style. It's possible. And then opportunity comes to you after a while if you do a good job, right, Julie? (laughs) Well, and you never rest on your laurels. And that's what helped develop my career as a lawyer was getting involved in conventions, legal conventions, and learning details, everything from how to develop a law practice to the intimate details of a certain type of law. I think that organizations, conventions are the most valuable opportunities because in addition to learning the substance, you meet people. Mm-hmm. And in AHP, you're not only meeting fellow AHP, of course, being American Horse Publications, you're meeting fellow journalists, perhaps, if you're you know, a freelance, but you're also meeting the editors and the up-and-comers at the publications and the places taking your material. Mm-hmm. Perfect combination. Absolutely. And other authors are there too and, and businesses, you know, so it's a great opportunity to network. I couldn't hi- highly, more highly recommend it. So besides buying your book, Equine Law and Horse Sense, do you have one piece of advice that you would share uh, for a new small business owner in the horse industry? Is there something, or as a horse owner, is there one thing that like sticks out in your mind? How about if I distill it to one thing and branch out for just a a couple of moments? As I mentioned, when I decided to start writing articles leading to the books that I've written, I noticed that publications, magazines out there, this was before the internet and our source of information was magazines, uh, but no publication 
made it a regular point to talk about the law. And my fear was that if we don't have information and access to the law and legal issues, we might avoid it. We might ignore it. It may not be a, a priority. Sure, we all have access to lawyers. You can look one up. You can call. But the point I make is if you picked up a magazine back around 1992, chances are excellent that you would not find a regular feature on the law. So the first thing I would say is if you're starting a business involving horses, have a general understanding about some of the legal issues. So how do you do that? Sure, there are things like my books. I have a blog called equinelawblog.com. But understand at the very least, here's where I'm branching out on it. You may need, you should have contracts. I shouldn't say you may need them. You really should have them. Um, in Arizona, where you're from, your equine liability law talks about how the written waivers are um, documents, language with waivers uh, within them are part and parcel of uh, your business's entitlement to rely on the equine liability law. It's in your statute in Arizona that you need to include certain language to avail yourself of any benefit under the law. The average person out there who doesn't have time to read about the law may not know that, and that's a problem. Probably about um, eight or nine years ago, I was invited to speak at a convention in Wickenburg, Arizona. Uh, I was flown out to Phoenix. They took me up there, and there was a little bit of downtime, and some of us went horseback riding. It was fun, um, and I was asked to sign the waiver. Their waiver did not comply with what is required under your Arizona equine liability law. So I asked if I could just give them a copy of the law, and I asked if they might want to pass that on to their lawyer. People don't generally think about the fact that the law intersects with what we do. Let's pretend your business, your horse activities, were in the state of Colorado. Colorado requires the posting of a sign. Does the person who's setting up an equine business in Colorado know that the signposting is an important thing? Maybe not. The person who is in the state of Georgia or some of the states on the East Coast may not know that it is within the law in some of those states that if you do not post your Equine Liability Act warning sign, you could lose any benefits from that law. If you don't include the required language in your contracts, particularly if you're an equine professional, you could lose benefits in that law. A lot of people don't know that, and then they find out the hard way. That's part of the compliance section that I talk about, as I mentioned, in the back of my book. So I hark back to the fact that having a general understanding of the law, knowing when you need to seek legal help is critical. Contracts are an absolute must. Understanding what you need to avoid liability, absolute must. Learning about insurance that you need is an absolute must. I will be candid. A lot of my clients are insurance companies. I'm not here to sell you their policies, but I'm here to tell you that depending on the activity that you engage in, you should at least know what policies are out there that could protect you. And if you choose not to get the policy and you don't have to by law, let it go. You then, Carla, you probably have, you're not, a, you're not in the commercial business operations with horses, are you? You're, you have just horses as your family business or your family activity? Family activity, yes. I have a I have the liability sign posted in my yard, although now I know in Arizona I don't, you really need, don't it. need one. Yeah. Right. But I do have family and friends over and I've never had them sign a waiver or anything. So, you know, 
Well, Arizona has some unique provisions in regard to waivers, and I talk about that. It's a mixed bag in Arizona. It tends to be a jury issue, Some of a, tends to be in Arizona with regard to waivers. But we're going to talk about insurance for just a second. Yeah. Insurance that you need as somebody who has a few horses would probably be your homeowner's insurance. You may need to advise your company that you have horses. And if you take those horses on the road, you go to shows, trail rides, whatever, there's no assurance to me that your homeowner's insurance is there for you. Possibly you can check with your insurance agent. You may want to purchase personal horse owner's liability insurance as an extra. Maybe you already have it. But let's say you're changing your activity. You really enjoy horses. You like giving lessons. You're a great instructor. You're going to start teaching lessons. You're now collecting some money. People are coming on your property, but you didn't change your insurance. Here's mm. the problem. Your student gets injured and you notify your insurance company because they've made a claim. They say that you've done something wrong. They think you're liable. Your insurance company is going to deny coverage. Why? Because, and I talk about it in my newest book, but there is a business pursuit exclusion on your homeowner's policy. You probably didn't know that. So when you did this business activity of collecting money for lessons, your company might say, looks like a business pursuit to me. Other companies may be a little bit less strict and say, well, it looks like a little sideline. We'll let it go. You should expect the companies to say, you're not covered. We didn't insure businesses. We excluded them. These are things I talk about in the book that people in the business world should know about. That is fantastic. And I love how you made the example and you broke things down uh, regarding, you know, around what I, I just learned a bunch right there. I did do a lot of those things to protect myself. But this book sounds like a book that every horse owner, horse business owner should have on their shelves to know what they're getting themselves into. And you make it sound like it's very easy to understand. So what a wealth of knowledge that you just shared with us. Thank you. So I wanted to ask, what are you curious about now? Like what's next for you, Julie? Where are you heading? Is there another book in there? You know, what are you thinking? It's going to be years. As, um, as I may have mentioned, the, this new book, Equine Law and Horse Sense, published by the ABA last year, has a lot of material, but it actually has the content of my first two equine law books with a lot of extra material put in. They have a huge number of updates. When my first book was published, I didn't have information about websites because mm -hmm. there really weren't as many that time. My second book had more. This book has updated information about websites, IRS websites, uh, sections that we may want to read about. Mm -hmm. If we are looking at whether our worker is an independent contractor or an employee, this book will steer you over to see how the IRS looks at it. That's mm -hmm. helpful. And also the fact that you may have a problem if you think your workers are contractors in the eyes of the law they're not this book will give you some resources to learn a little bit more that's as you know a continuing problem in the horse industry mm -hmm. people say i don't have employees they're contractors but when you hone in on what the law says for example what the irs thinks you realize oh my goodness i'm controlling the hours of the person i'm providing all the tools that they're using i'm telling them how to do it and of course i want a certain result i've got an employee on my hands Horse people don't learn that often until it's too late, and that's mm. unfortunate. So I'm hoping to educate people about that. That is one of the things that I, I wrote about. The question then is, is there another book? I don't know if there's time. This book is the sum total of, frankly, decades of writing. Mm -hmm. So there may not be an article, but there's a blog, Equine Law blog, that will hopefully be populated for quite some time. <laughs> 
Yeah. And then, you know, a future project obviously will be, I mean, that's something that, that happens when, when you do write a book of this magnitude and of this topic is that it may require updating in a few years. So this, this book has longevity, but there will be probably the first edition, the second edition, the third edition, the fourth edition, if this is the go-to resource for people to understand equine law, that's a possibility. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying that that could be a possibility. <laughs> it is. But but I will assure you that there are uh, more and more lawyers who want to practice and are practicing equine law. And I'm hoping that the continued publication of things like this, this book, uh, has generated an interest. And I do get a lot of inquiries from high school students, college students, and law students who have said, Said, I want to do equine law. I would love to do this. So oh, my cool. hope is if I back off because I've got enough material out there, you, you're going to find some more names in the years ahead, more attorneys who want to help the industry. You'll see more names. That's exciting. I mean, you know, you're kind of setting the stage for the future generation too. And I love hearing that young people are reaching out to you wanting to do this. And it's so amazing. This is a career involving horses that can actually be lucrative. You know, a lot of the complaint is there's not a lot you can do in the horse industry where you could actually make a lot of money. <laughs> well, having that, that's a good point. But I would like everybody to know that for the most part, because I do tend to know who the equine lawyers are, um, there are very, very few attorneys in the United States whose practice is 100% equine. If I had to think of exceptions, I might be able to count them on one hand. For them, uh, otherwise, what you're finding is attorneys who include equine law within mm. their areas of practice. We would love to do more of it, but we know that a lot of people in the industry are very self-reliant, they're very smart, and they tend to help themselves. It's when disputes become very heated, they're in litigation, and they need help that people will uh, often seek out lawyers. But it isn't cheap. Lawyers cost a lot. I've learned a, a lawyer I've known for years is $600 an hour. Hmm. I'm not $600 an hour. That lawyer's younger than me and has billed out apparently at that. My rate is not like that. Lawyers are expensive, which is another reason that I've been writing to have people avoid these problems, hopefully to save some money. Absolutely. Educate yourself. And then that's a great point. Lawyers are expensive. So if you do need to use a lawyer, make sure you have your ducks in the row, which is another reason to read this book. So you have all the right materials. So when you need to go and sit with a lawyer, you know, you can do something in an hour rather than 12, you know, like when it comes to the initial conversations, right? Actually, that goes kind of go for anything, you know, be organized, have the materials, save yourself some money. <laughs> True. And even a section on small claims court, you see the people's court shows on television, horse people, if they have a small claims court case may not know how to organize it. Your point is well taken. Horse people can organize for their own legal battles that they fight and for those meetings with a lawyer. And hopefully both go very successfully. Yeah. And the same with authors, you know, organize your contracts, organize your receipts, be organized when it comes time to file your taxes, do it as you go. And right. it saves you a lot of time and money in the long run. And you're protecting yourself, you know, the, and the same goes for authors. Like all we've been talking about with equine law today, the same goes for authors. There are books out there called with, with legal steps for authors to know about before you embark on this career, because before you know it, you own a business, you write a book, you own a business. Educate, educate, educate. Know your rights. Understand contracts. Work with a lawyer when it's necessary. Protect yourself. Correctively. <laughs> <laughs>
So, and, and I think it's um, it, it's the knowledge of what you need to do to protect yourself. At least a general idea that gets you in the right direction. And that's why I've talked about waivers and releases and elements of what goes into it. Again, no forms uh, for somebody reading it to to see that might educate them that this form that they found years ago on the internet may not work. Mm. And that piece of paper, when done right, depending on the state law and the circumstances, could save somebody millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. That piece of paper is critical. So, right, it's um, learning through um, everywhere from you know resources, learning when you need a lawyer, uh, that can be pretty powerful. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for 5,000 hours and really dive into this because you're so knowledgeable. And, you know, I just thank you for being on the show and sharing about your book and creating this resource for, for horse owners and horse business owners. Julie, would you share where listeners can find you in your books? Absolutely. Uh, the easiest website to find me would be my website of equinelaw.net. The easiest way to get information on the book Equine Law and Horse Sense, the brand new one, would be through equinelaw.info. Uh, each of those websites will give you information on the book and even a little bit about what I do. Uh, the book is currently for sale at the, through the American Bar Association and also through Amazon. Uh, you can pull it up on Amazon.com and you'll find more information about the book there. Terrific. And I'll make sure to link to all those places in the show notes so people can get directly to you and the books. And Julie, thank you so much for the gift of your time and for sharing so much amazing information with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and riding, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.